good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. invite you to turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. I set out this week to preach to you Exodus 15, 1 through 21, and I will not do that today. I will, we will, Lord willing, focus our time on verses 1 through 3 and then verses 19 through 21. So we have some, some bookends and then, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll we'll get what's in the middle. So Exodus chapter 15, I do want to read the whole thing this morning together. So if you have your Bible there in Exodus 15, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. Exodus 15 verses 1 through 21 is our text this morning. We believe that these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your, whole, for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, 
And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray together. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we now come to your word, seeking these words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to understand, give us a spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel, O Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage, we have entered into a new chapter and really have entered into a new section of the story, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But we are confronted with actually the first song ever listed out in its lyrics in the scriptures. We have, we have uh, notes that other characters in Genesis sing, but in Exodus 15, we have our first song that is actually listed out with its lyrics in the scriptures. And we find in Exodus 15, this song of response that Moses leads the people of Israel in after being saved from Pharaoh and his army and their chariots and their horses. And it begs the question to me is, why is this one listed? Why does the Lord give us in Exodus 15, this, this song with all of its lyrics for us to have? And I think what's fascinating is as we look at this, this song, what it does for us is it reminds us or really informs us of why we as the people of God continue to sing to God. It reminds us that, that much of our singing is merely a response to the salvation that God has granted us. That much of our singing is merely a response to the truth that we understand about God and we sing that truth back to Him. And so we arrive this morning at Exodus 15, verse 1, and the first word is the word then, which, is, which seems like such a silly word to come after what a glorious thing has just happened in chapter 14. Like if we just pick up in 15 and we don't think about what the then represents, then, then we'll, we'll be tempted to miss the power of this moment because what has happened before? The, the then is there to tell us that what has happened before is this this awesome, awe-inspiring, miraculous salvation of the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh, out of all of the power of his army onto dry, grand, dry ground on the other side of the sea. And as we pick up in this Exodus story, what we pick up at is, is the moment right after the climax of the story. When we think about stories and think about climaxes, it's often not in the first half of a text that we find the height of the conflict, but we really have found it here in Exodus chapter 14. We find it in Exodus chapter 14, the height of the, the conflict, the moment where it's, it's still, if we had never read the whole book uh, front to back, it's still in the air whether or not the people of Israel escape Pharaoh once for all or are caught there in the sea. And we, we saw last week the fear in their eyes. We saw the, the fear in their words and what they said. We saw their terror as they, they are standing there between a sea 
and a sea of army coming toward them with all of their weapons and all of their horses and all of their chariots. And they're struck by fear. And in that moment, that height of the conflict, we see the Lord save them. Not using their own power, not using their own strength, but by His strength, by the, the might of His hand. By, as, we, as we see in verse 10, by the wind that's His wind that He blew, by His right hand, He saved them. Not only did He part the waters, but He also parted them long enough for the Israelites to cross. And then He threw them back in their place, destroying the Egyptian armies, that's what the then holds within it. All of that is held within the then. And not only that, you could go further and say he also had slain all of the firstborn of Egypt. He had destroyed their crops, all of their land. He had, he had destroyed Egypt's future in a sense. All of that is held within this word then. And it says in verse 15, then Moses and the people of Israel sang. But before we can really get to what, he, what they sang, we have to note and be reminded that Moses and the people of Israel is, is a phrase that stands for, by most estimates, two million people. Chapter 12, verse 37 told us that it was 600,000 men plus women and children. So we assume this large group has, has exited Egypt and they've not only exited Egypt, but the Lord has brought them safely through the waters as the waters were parted and then drawn the waters back on the people, the armies of Egypt, and he's brought them out. And this is a multitude of, of people that if we were to be in the midst of it, we would not be able to count. And it says, then after all of these things, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. When I think about this scene, when I, when I pause and try to imagine it in my head, I can't do it. What a glorious scene. To think about the, the large group of people who are standing here, men, women, and children, who in response to the salvation of the Lord, sing. Spurgeon in this thinking, trying to imagine this scene, says this, quote, What an assembly. Millions made up that choir. Though their voices were little tuned to music, yet as they lifted them up, each one throwing his whole strength into the strain, it must have sounded like the noise of many waters, especially when they repeated the refrain, Sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea, end quote. I imagine even now, right, we come together and a and hundred something of us are singing together and we are encouraged by one another. When I look across the room as we're singing and I see other brothers and sisters singing praises to the Lord, I'm encouraged. Can you imagine this group of millions of people singing together the strength that it would provide to them? Before we ever even know what they're singing, this moment, this scene, where after all of this salvation that the Lord has enacted for them, their first response is to sing. So my thesis this morning and, and next week, if we put those two together, is that the song of Moses informs our own singing. The song of Moses informs our own singing because the salvation Israel celebrated is a shadow of the salvation we celebrate. 
Song of Moses informs our own singing because the salvation Israel celebrated is a shadow of the salvation that we celebrate. So interestingly enough, as we look at this, as we look at this, uh, this song here in Exodus chapter 15, there's, there's some fascinating changes, some shifts that happen throughout the song. And so we have this first, this first pronouncement in verse one, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And that seems to be the refrain. We find that again in verse 21, when Miriam comes out to, to lead the women in the singing, she sings something very similar. We'll talk about the difference in just a second. And in verses one through 13, we get this story of how the Lord has saved the Israelites from Egypt. So in verses one through 13, you have all of these, these what we might call in English past tense verbs, or in, in Hebrew, you have these imperfect tense verbs where there's, there's words that are, that are signaling to us that these things have been done. And we know that's true because we just saw it happen in chapter 14. But then there's a shift in after verse 13 and verses 14 through 18, where they begin to sing about the things that the Lord is doing and will do. And there's this, this beautiful transition from the first half to the second half to say, the Lord has saved us from the Egyptians. The Lord is saving us from all of these other nations, and the Lord will bring us to his mountain at the end. And there's this beautiful progression of understanding salvation as something that that has happened in the past, that is currently happening, and that will happen. And we find this throughout the scriptures where salvation is spoken of in those three different ways. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week because what I want to focus on this morning is those first three verses and those last three verses. Verses one through three, or four, four verses at the end, verses 19 through 21. That's actually three. I'm not good at math. And I want to frame this in terms of a command. If you notice in verse 21, Miriam repeats what Moses says in verse 1 with one difference. Notice the beginning of what she says. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Miriam says, sing to the Lord, an imperative, a command. Sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. I want to take what Miriam does there in making this an imperative and make it an imperative for us as well. And what I want to lay before us this morning in, in, in one sentence is a command. Sing, for Yahweh has indeed triumphed gloriously. Sing, for Yahweh has triumphed gloriously. Let's look at verse 1. It says that Moses and the people, this large multitude, they begin to sing this song to the Lord. And what does the song say? It says, I will sing to the Lord, to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I want you to notice that Miriam takes what Moses sings and she makes it a command in verse 21. But I also want you to notice the, the audience of this song. It doesn't say, let's sing a song about the Lord. It doesn't say, let's sing a song of the Lord, even though those two things are true. It doesn't say, let's sing a song to one another, even though that is also true. It says, let's sing a song to the Lord, to Yahweh. 
Oh, how it would invigorate this singing. The way that they sang, the loudness of their voices, if they used it as an occasion to remind them of all that Yahweh had done for them. Notice the difference. If you imagine you're just singing for your own good, compared to if you're singing to the Lord of glory, the covenant-keeping God who has just saved you from the Egyptians and before that saved you from the Egyptians and before that saved you from the Egyptians and has, has been your Savior. They say, we're going to sing to the Lord, not merely about Him, but to Him. And I think this matters for us because when we gather on the Lord's day, I think part of what we think about, and which is true as we sing, is we sing to prepare ourselves to hear from the Lord, or we sing as a response to the truth that we've heard from the Lord. And all of those things are true. But at the same time, our songs are an offering of worship to him where we, where we say, I, I know the truth. I hear what is true about me because of what Christ has done for me. And I'm going to sing praises back to him because of what he has done that I could have never never done for myself. And so when, he, when it says that they sing to Yahweh, we do the same thing, right? We, we come together and gather together, not two million strong, but, but in this room, we come together and we sing praises to the Lord. We sing to the Lord and this singing is never in this passage divorced from joy. Look at verse 20. It says, then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Now, I feel like in a Baptist world, this becomes like a joke, right? That this is just, you know, that's, we don't do that. You know, other people do that. But, but this in, it's in the Bible, right? Verse 20, Miriam comes out with a tambourine in her hand, and the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam's instrument, uh, your version might say a timbrel, is typically spoken of when we look at the Old Testament in times of joy or rejoicing. So in Genesis 31, 27, Laban is, is trying to figure out why Jacob kind of skipped out on him early. And he says, why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine or timbrel and lyre? 1 Samuel 18, 6, after David comes back from defeating Goliath, it says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Now, as I was trying to find out what this tambourine was probably like or what it looked like, uh, I was reading and uh, I came across this quote from from Ligon Duncan. So Ligon Duncan argues that the, the Hebrews had a, a penchant for using onomatopoeia when they, when they created instrument names, which makes a lot of sense. Name the instrument after what it sounds like so you know what it is. So he says, quote, the name of this instrument is literally in Hebrew, the thump. I love it, the thump. And so you get the idea that this is some sort of tambourine. It's some sort of a skin stretched over an instrument, and it makes a thumping noise. Now, I, it, it completely makes this image so much better. 
that they're walking around, not merely walking, but dancing around in joy for the salvation that the Lord has provided. And they're, they're beating these drums with their hands and they're celebrating the fact that their God has saved them from what seemed to be an impossible foe. And not only has saved them from that foe, but that foe will never come again to, to come after them. It's impossible. He can't come back. And they're singing to the Lord with joy. As we look at even, if, you, if we were to go through and see all of the times that the Old Testament mentions dancing, it's these moments of victory for the Israelites that they come out in response in dancing. And I'm reminded, and I think it's a challenge to us, that the salvific work of God ought to be met with rejoicing for the saint. Whether it's the salvific work of God in our hearts or someone around us, around us, us their heart, the salvific work of God ought to be met with rejoicing for the saint. Because how can we see that God reconciled me or someone else, a sinner, to himself and not respond with joy? That singing is this natural response. When we see what God has done in salvation, and we could get specific, right? When we see what God has done in salvation to sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ, it ought to cause in us a stirring to be filled with joy. And we sing with joy because of the salvation the Lord has accomplished. So we sing to the Lord first, but second, we sing to the Lord for what he has done. Look at, at verse 1 and verse 21. So after that original, I will sing versus the command to sing difference in verses 1 and 21, the rest is the same. It says, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, he has triumphed gloriously is, is an interesting construction. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means. But as you look at the Hebrew text, what happens in this verse where it says he has triumphed gloriously, triumph and gloriously are the same word. They just stack them together. So the same word here is used for triumph and for gloriously, and they're, they're put together. So to kind, of, to kind of give us the idea of when you say something twice, it makes it more serious, right? I do this with my children when they, when they come to me and they want a snack, right? And I give them one snack and they eat it really quickly and they want another snack. And I give them that one and they're like, but we're still hungry. And I say, oh, so you're hungry, hungry right? You understand that the seriousness of it grows if you repeat it. What we see here in, in the Hebrew, it says, it says this same word twice. It's just a repeating of this word. And the word literally means in the Hebrew to rise up. So this is the only time it's used in this way in Exodus 15 to talk of God. In other places, it's used to talk of others. So in other places, it's used to speak of something growing like a plant. Or in Job 10, it's speaking of Job's head being lifted up. And so here we have these two words, the same word, put together, back to back. It seems to emphasize how highly Yahweh is lifted up. The Septuagint echoes this language. He, it translates it, quote, for he is glorified, end quote. So the scriptures would tell us in verse 1 and verse 21, we sing to the Lord, why? For he is highly lifted up. He is the one who has triumphed gloriously. The measure of his triumph cannot be 
cannot be codified because it is that high. He is high up. And the question is, if that's true, then Moses, why or how is that true? It says in the second part of verse 1, second part of verse 21, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Pharaoh, his men, his horses, his chariots are swallowed up in the sea in an instant. I want you to notice verse 19 gives us a little bit of commentary on this. And Moses is very clear who is responsible for this salvation in verse 19. It says, For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord, Yahweh, brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. I want you to see very clearly that Moses credits the Lord with bringing the waters back onto the Egyptians. There's no doubt. There's nothing left to chance about who is being communicated as having saved the Israelites from the Egyptians. The Israelites were cowering between the Egyptians and the sea, and Yahweh provided salvation by his strong arm. He did something they could not do. And thus, he is the one who triumphs gloriously. This isn't even taking into account what he's already done. And I think that it should. When we read that he has triumphed gloriously, the thing that is immediately on their mind is that he has, he has dashed the, the Egyptian armies and their chariots and their horses into the sea and they are gone and they will not come back. But there's so much more. He has grown this people from a small clan in the days of Jacob to what some estimate, as we said before, to two million people. He's taken an 80-year-old man, unskilled in speaking, and placed him before the most powerful man on the planet with one command, quote, let my people go, end quote. And through that man's, that powerful man's arrogance, through the arrogance of Pharaoh, he has completely destroyed the land of Egypt. He's disarmed the gods of Egypt. He's led the people out of Egypt with gold and silver. And then has killed not only their king, but all of his armies. He has triumphed gloriously. And if that weren't clear enough, he says again in verse three, he says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, I, I think, as we think about this, this verse, the Lord is a man of war. Why does he call him a man of war? I think there's a, a deeper, bigger purpose that we'll talk about in a second. But I think originally this, this word, as we see here, this phrase, man of war, it, it creates this comparison for us. Who would have set himself up as a man of war if not Pharaoh? Who would have set himself up as one who could, who could defeat a people, who could, who could rule over multiple nations, who could be the one to, to guide his people to victory but Pharaoh, and Moses says, I don't know if you, you didn't catch his name, but it's not Pharaoh. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. This name, more than any other name, causes fear in the enemy. 
the one who is, the one who destroyed all the gods of Egypt, all the land of Egypt, all the livestock of Egypt, all the firstborn of Egypt, all the armies of Egypt, and the king of Egypt is fighting for us. One commentator writes, the proud people which for generations had inflicted such untold griefs upon them had suffered a humiliation from which it would take them generations to recover. The chivalry of Egypt was overwhelmed in the midst of the sea. There remains not so much as one of them left. And all along the shore lay the bodies of the dead cast up from the depths of the tide. At this day, a significant blank in the hieroglyph memorials of Egypt tells the story of that overwhelming disaster. And there was given to Israel for all subsequent time an evidence of the trustworthiness of God, which compelled belief not only in their great deliverer, but in his servant, Moses. This reality that our God is a man of war, that the Lord is his name, that there is not another God who can come up against him, guides literally guides the nation of Israel throughout their history. You can look through the Old Testament, and as you read the Old Testament, what you find is that when God goes with them to battle, they win. And when he doesn't go, they lose. The reality is that the, that the Lord is, is the strong one. He even tells them as much in Deuteronomy. He says, I didn't, I didn't choose you because you're the strongest of all the nations or because you're the most lovely. And at the end of the age, and I think this is important that we, we connect these two things. At the end of the age, what do we see Christ as being, if not a man of war? Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 say this, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The Bible leaves no doubt as to who is the mighty man of war. Calvin writes, the Lord is a man of war is to the same purpose. For although at first sight, the phrase may seem a harsh one, still it is not without beauty that God is armed in military attire to contend with all the forces of his foes. Therefore, says Moses, the name of the Lord belongs to him alone because his hand awaits to destroy whatever lifts itself up against him. We sing to the Lord for what he has done. He has triumphed gloriously. 
He has triumphed gloriously as a man of war. But not only that, we sing to the Lord for who he is. If you look at verse 2, we sing to the Lord for who he is. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The text here tells us five things that are true about the Lord in relation to his people. If you notice there, it, it has, in our, in our English versions, it has the word my before each of these. He is my strength. He's my song. He's become my salvation. He's my God, and he is my Father's God. We, we see here, if we look at these five realities, we see them working presently in what the people of Israel are, are experiencing in Exodus 15, but then we also see them in our own minds and in our own hearts, which we'll get to in just a second. But if you look here, when it says, he is my strength, it means then that this is an acknowledgement that all of their power, all of their might has come not from themselves, but from God. They were powerless to deliver themselves from slavery to to Egypt. They were powerless to deliver themselves from this moment at the Red Sea, but God in his mercy is their strength. Psalm 28, verses six through eight. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength, same word, and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength, same word, of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. What I love about this Exodus 15 song is that it seems like it becomes, it becomes source material for the rest of the Old Testament for people to write songs. He says that the people of Israel say that this song, in this song, that the Lord is their strength. But not only do they say that the Lord is their strength, but they say that the Lord is their song. If you look there again in verse 2 that he is my song. It tracks then that if Yahweh is called their strength, that he would also be the song of the people. For if it's his strength that delivered them, then it would be his praise that was ever to be on their lips. And this is what I mean when I say that I think that this, this song becomes source material for other Old Testament writers because what we find in Psalm 118 that we read at the beginning of our time together today in verses 14 through 16, it says this, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. David picks up this language and says, this is is true of God, that he is is my strength. And if he is my strength, if it's his power that I am dependent on to live and to breathe, then it is his song that I'm going to sing. I'm not going to sing my own song. I'm not going to sing the praises of who I am and what I can build and what I can be. I'm going to sing his song because if he's the one who provides the power, then he's the only one worthy of all of my praise and honor. Isaiah picks up the same language in Isaiah 12 verses 1 through 6. He says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And this is what it says, what Isaiah says about that salvation. He says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah begins to argue that this song of our God, who is not only our strength, but is our song and is our Savior, not merely our Savior, but our salvation, ought to be shouted from, from everywhere that we are to everyone that we see. Let this be made known, it says in verse 5, in all the earth. But not only is, does it say, the Lord is my strength and the Lord is my song, but it also says that He has become my salvation. Now, why does it change the, the flow there? Why does it not say, and he is my salvation? Well, I think that the reason that it says that is because at this moment, the Israelites believe this to be true. They, they understand that God is their strength, that God is their song. And at this moment, after chapter 14, after seeing what he has done, they, they understand, they believe that he is their salvation from Egypt. Psalm 106, 11 and 12 are recounting this, and it says, and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Verse 12, then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Now, granted, this belief seemed to be pretty short-lived. We'll, we'll see that in the next couple of weeks, that even though the Lord has shown them over and over and over again how glorious he is, they are still a people prone to grumbling. But he says, they sing together, you have become my salvation. What is this acknowledging? Well, it's acknowledging chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of who? Of the Lord, which who will work for you? He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Who will fight for you? The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to what? Offer your gifts and talents? No, be silent. He says, the Lord has become my salvation. There's no room for anyone to take credit for any of it other than the Lord himself. He's not merely, and, and I think this language is important, it doesn't say that he has become my savior, but rather he has become my salvation, which I think signals the fact that not only has he provided a way of salvation, it's not that he has just made salvation possible for themselves, but rather he has made salvation possible through himself. That salvation only comes through him. And so it says not merely is he their savior, but he is their salvation, the sole provider of their salvation in himself. You can imagine all of these people singing this song together. Not one of them has any standing to say, well, I was pretty brave going through that water. I did, you know, do the right thing. He has become my salvation. Not only that, it says, he is my God, which is an acknowledgement that none other is worthy of worship and praise. That what God did in the plagues is, is true continually. That there are no other gods who can stand up against him. That the gods of Egypt can do nothing compared to what he has done. In fact, there are no gods of Egypt left to worship. 
None of them are worthy of this kind of singing that the people sing in Exodus 15. None of them are, are strong like the Lord. None of them can save like the Lord. None of them are worthy of the songs of the people. He says, he is my God. And not only is the Lord, they say my God, but also my father's God. This takes us back to what God said about himself in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3, as, as God is calling Moses to go and, and, and speak to Pharaoh on behalf of the people, this is what he says. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What are they saying when they say that, he, that the Lord is my father's God? What they're saying is, is that there's a connection between their salvation from Egypt and the promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago that he would bring them out. There's a connection. God is not, is not uh, unable to keep his promise. God is not able to, to keep his covenants with his people. All, all of this salvation from the Egypt and from the armies of Egypt and from Pharaoh and all of their destruction in the sea shouts to the people of Israel that Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God, that he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and he has been faithful to his promise to deliver them from their captivity, and he is their God. When they sing these truths back to God, it's, it's a shouting that our God keeps his covenants. He keeps his promises. And I want you to notice what this truth does. Knowing this truth in the mind of Moses and the Israelites as they sing, what this truth does is it prompts something. Look at verse two. The Lord is my strength, and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The refrain of verse two is that I will praise him and I will exalt him. I will adorn his name with praise. I will honor him. I will, knowing this truth, the, the correct response to this truth is to honor him like none other. And I love this word exalt because you know what exalt means? It means lift him up. And what has, they, what has Moses just said about the Lord? That he has triumphed gloriously, that literally he is lifted high, that he is lifted up twice. He is lifted, lifted. And they say, what, what can we do other than lift up his name? There's nothing left to do. And we see this truth and we say, this is nothing that we could have done. We want to lift his name. We will exalt him. He has triumphed gloriously, and our only response is to sing songs of praise to him. Is he not worthy of a song that lifts him up above all others? But I think within this, within the, the statements of verses 1 through 3 and verse 21, we're also reminded that this salvation is all of grace. And what I mean by that is it's not as if the people of Israel 
are the, the epitome of goodness and godliness. And now that the Lord has saved them from Egypt, that they're on a new path, they've turned over a new leaf, they figured it out, they're not going to you know, not do anything bad anymore. If you've read in the rest of Exodus, you understand that, that that's the truth. They, it's not that they've turned over a new leaf here at this moment of being saved from the Egyptians at the sea. In fact, we can't even make it out of chapter 15 without them grumbling again to Moses. Look at verse 24. They come to this place where there's water and it's bitter. Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Imagine just for a moment, this isn't the point, but imagine for a moment the, the ridiculousness to say, well, I know, I mean, we got saved from Pharaoh and his armies, but listen, we're thirsty. I mean, imagine the, the ridiculous nature of this. This is not, this is not some kind of, uh, this, some, this is not some kind of statement that the people have figured it out and they've turned over a new leaf. No, rather, this is a reminder that salvation from God is all of grace. It's not that these people are worthy. For to, Calvin says, for to say that God had, quote, become their salvation, end quote, was as much as to say that the people were saved by his grace. That there is no, there is no worthiness here. There is no goodness. And in closing, I want to finally just remind us and, and finish this section of our thesis that the song of Moses informs our own singing by looking at the ways that Christ has triumphed gloriously over all of his enemies. Because I think what we, what we find here in, in Exodus 15 is a beautiful song of praise to God for saving the people from the Egyptians. But we can drink of it so much more deeply because we've, we've been saved from something far worse than slavery to Egypt. We've been saved from something far worse than, than being caught between an Egyptian army and a body of water. We've been saved from sin, death, and the devil. Christ has triumphed gloriously over all of his enemies, and he has become our salvation in this sense because Christ defeated his enemies in his own death. He's not merely our savior, but he is our salvation. That at the cross, he defeated our sin. He died our death. He cast Satan down. And all of these things we, we know to be true now make this text in, in Exodus 15 so much more beautiful. Because Christ has, in fact, triumphed gloriously over all of his enemies. He has triumphed gloriously over the enemy of sin in his earthly ministry. It says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. At the cross and in the resurrection, Colossians 2 tells us, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That Christ has triumphed gloriously. He is lifted high over this enemy of sin because at the cross, he took our sin, canceling the record of debt that stood against us because it was put on him. In Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14, we see a, a comparison that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And we know that in the last day, sin will be banished forever. That, that the sin that feels like it clings so closely now will be gone forever. That there will be a day where we don't have to struggle with sin anymore because it will be gone when we see Christ face to face. That this battle that we are raging, it feels like every day where we, where we are fighting our sin and fighting our flesh and saying no to the flesh and saying yes to the spirit and growing in grace, all of that one day will be gone and sin will be banished forever. Christ has triumphed gloriously over sin. And not only that, Christ has triumphed gloriously over death. Can you imagine in his earthly ministry, we're, we're reading the parables right now with the students and, and, and before that you see all of these times when Jesus is going from place to place and he's healing diseases and he's, and he's, and he's bringing the dead back to life. It's like this, this image, right, of rolling back this, the curse that has been on the, the people of the earth ever since Genesis 3. It's that reminder that the, that the seed of woman has come and he's going to defeat the seed, the, the seed of the serpent, that there is going to be a day where death will not be a reality anymore. And in his earthly ministry, he's, he's healing these diseases and raising the dead and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And it's, it's shouting to us, at least. This is just the beginning. But he triumphs gloriously over death, not merely in his earthly ministry, before he dies, but at the cross and the resurrection. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, Jesus says this, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He rose from the dead and as such, he has the keys of death. He died and rose and is the living one. He's alive forevermore. He triumphed gloriously over death because death could not hold him down. And in the last day, he will triumph gloriously over death. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read this passage last week, verses 50, starting in verse 50, it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 21.4 reminds us that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. What a statement that death shall be no more. It's done. It's gone. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And we're reminded this morning that, that Christ has triumphed glorious over death, which means that we don't have to fear death. That when we're tempted to say, when we're tempted to, to say, I don't know what's going to happen, we know we trust that we do know the one who does. And that one has defeated death. Not only has he defeated sin, but he has defeated death. And he not only has defeated sin and death, but he has defeated the devil. 
1 John 3.8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And at the cross, John 12.31, when, when Jesus is speaking of his crucifixion, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Colossians 2, Paul reminds us that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And in the last day, Revelation 20 says, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Our God has triumphed gloriously in Christ in a way that is so much grander than, than delivering people from the armies of Egypt. He has triumphed gloriously in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and on the last day. And what we know is that all of his enemies, all of his enemies will be at the bottom of the sea, but it's not a sea of water. It's a sea of fire, a lake of fire and sulfur. But not only that, God's immutability means that the things that the Israelites claim about God and his relation to them apply to those of us who have believed on Christ, that he is our strength, that we were powerless to save ourselves. We didn't have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, as Paul would say in Philippians, but rather our righteousness comes through faith in Christ. We couldn't save ourselves. We were powerless to keep ourselves. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He provides the power we need to endure suffering. He equips us to be strong through putting on the whole armor of God. He is our strength. Not only that, but he is our song. If we get to the end of this, of this text and we say, oh yeah, there's probably someone else worth worshiping, then we're delusional because the reality is there's no one else to sing of. All the love songs in the world could not fully and accurately describe the love that God has for his people in Christ. I'm reminded of the hymn, The Love of God, that says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the, the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the, the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. He is our song. There is no one else to sing of. But not only is he our strength and our song, he is our salvation. He has not merely saved us, but he has become our salvation himself. He has taken our place. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He has become our salvation. Gill writes, he is not only their savior, but salvation itself being not only the author of it and that being in him for them, but made that itself unto them. Even their all in all, their righteousness, atonement, peace, light, life, food, health, comfort, and joy, all their grace being in him and from him, as well as their eternal glory and happiness. But not only is he our strength and our song and our salvation, he is our God, that Jesus is God made flesh. John 1 would tell us that he, he is the, the word, the eternal word, the eternal word that verse 14 says became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. And what kind of glory it is, is it? The glory of the Father. 
He has come and he has established his kingdom. He is, in fact, a man of war. He has made war on our sin. He has made war on death and he has made war on the devil. He is our God and he is our Father's God. When you think about the connection between Exodus 15 and Genesis 15, is this reminder that the Lord has, has proven faithful to what he promised Abraham. But what else has he promised Abraham? He's promised Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And do we not see this in Christ? That Christ is the offspring who blesses all the families of the earth? That in Christ we, we are reminded of God's faithfulness, his, his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness to his people. But not only that, that his covenant faithfulness to save a people that is numerous as the stars, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We believe that these things are true, not merely for the, the Israelites escaping Egypt, but even more so for us that the Lord, in fact, has triumphed gloriously over all of his enemies, over sin, over death, and over the devil, that he is our strength, that he is our song, that he has become our salvation, that he is our God, and that he is our Father's God. And what is our response? Our response is to sing with joy, to sing with joy. That's our response. And I think it's important that we understand that when we sing with joy, we are first of all singing for our own joy. I've, I've told the story before of my maternal grandfather, but I, I love that man more than I love most men. And he never stops singing, never. And it's for his joy. It's hard to be upset when you're singing. And when you sing the truth of God, when you sing the truth that I was dead and now I'm alive, the truth that I was lost and now I'm found, the truth that there is, is one God and he is God over all and he defeats all his enemies in Christ, then if we sing those things, then it will be hard not to have joy in the face of whatever our circumstance is. I want you to notice this, that this song does not negate all of the difficulties that, that the people of Israel experience from here on out. It doesn't say, well, now that we're singing with joy that we don't have to, to deal with those difficulties. No, it, but what we do understand is that when we sing the truth of God, when we're reminded of the truth of God, it gives us the power to deal with those difficulties knowing that he is God and he is good and all things that come our way are for his glory and for our good. And so we sing for our joy, but not only that, we sing for our neighbor's joy. You sing loudly at church, as we gather together, why? One, for your joy. Two, because the person beside you might need to be encouraged. Can you imagine how encouraging it is when two million people sing the same song and they're looking at the person next to them and they're saying, this is our God. Look what he can do. We are all powerless, all of us together, but our God is powerful. Sing for your joy, but sing for your neighbor's joy. And finally, sing for your God's joy. Why do we sing the truth of God to God? Not because he doesn't know it. Not because he doesn't know that we know it. We sing the truth of God to God because he is glorious. He has triumphed glorious and he is worthy of all praise and worthy of all exaltation. So may we be a people who in response to the truth of God's salvation, sing with joy. Let's pray.